Amen. Good morning, Haynes Creek. Hope you are all doing well. It is good to be worshiping with you today. Uh, thanks for joining us. Uh, if it's your first time, I want to say a special welcome to you. We are thrilled and excited you're here worshiping with us. If you don't mind doing me a huge favor and just letting us know that you are here, uh, best way to do that is just to, as you leave, stop by our welcome table. We've got our welcome cards right there on the table. You just fill one of those out, leave it on the table, and uh, that'll give me a chance to reach out and say thank you so much for your visit. So if you do me that favor, I would really appreciate that. And uh, you join us as we're working our way through the book of Acts. So we're going to continue that today. So if you have your Bibles, <clears throat> you can go ahead and open up to Acts chapter 13. Uh, we began Acts chapter 13 last week, and it's really this new section in the book of Acts that focuses entirely on the missionary journeys of Paul. So we see this section from Acts 13 to Acts 20, and we're really focusing in on what we can learn uh, from a life on mission. What, what is Paul's life, his dedication to Jesus and, and the mission of God? What does that teach us today in 2022? So uh, we're going to finish out Acts chapter 13 today. It's a long one. We got a lot of verses to walk through, uh, but it'll be fun. So uh, Acts chapter 13, and, and as we saw last week, what, what started this, what, what began this entire work was the Holy Spirit at the church in Antioch setting apart Barnabas and Saul for this new work, this new mission to, to bring the gospel all over the Roman Empire, to brand new people, to brand new parts. And today we're going we're gonna to look at what, what can we learn from obeying the call to God, right? We talked last week about God's calling and, and what does that mean? What does that look like? How do I know if God's calling me to something? Uh, all of those details. And, and once we have the, this clear call from the Lord of what our lives are supposed to look like, what does it mean to walk in obedience? To that? What, what does it look like to walk in obedience? So we're going to look at that concept, that idea today in the first missionary journey as Paul and Barnabas began or begin this new work. And as, as we're going to see, things don't go exactly as planned. You know, there, there's some some ups and downs and some snags along the way, just like life is, right? Life doesn't always go according to plan. Things don't always happen as we expect them to happen. And something like that happened to me this week. On Thursday, I was, uh, I was actually meeting with a, with a local pastor. Uh, Russell Graves is his name. He pastors Clearview Ministries down in Covington. Uh, they meet at the, uh, the Annex Building for First Baptist Covington, if you guys know where that is. Uh, their church plant started four years ago. A wonderful man of God, wonderful pastor. Uh, he, he's been praying for us for a long time, and I, we should be doing the same thing for them and their ministry. So Clearview Ministries, Pastor Russell Graves. So uh, I got to hang out with him for a little while, and it was, it was a lot of fun, really good getting to know him and, and hear more about his ministry and what the Lord's doing through him, uh, and be able to share what the Lord's doing here at Haynes Creek. And uh, I don't know if you guys remember Thursday morning, kind of rained a little bit that morning, um, and, and to get into the annex building, there's this, these steps, and they're wooden steps, and I made it up the stairs just fine. Uh, so I met with him, and then as I was coming down, expecting, you know, I'm just going to easily go down the stairs like I do normally because that's how I, I, you know, I can walk and all that good stuff. And uh, I, I put my foot on the first step and y'all, I slipped completely, feet up in the air, came crashing down, boom, 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 
all the way down the stairs. Thankfully, you know, nobody was looking unless you were driving by and you saw this man just falling down the stairs. And like Channing asked, he's like, saw some bruise on my arm. Like, what happened? There was like, oh yeah, I'll, I'll tell you at the beginning of the sermon. It, that was not at all what I expected to happen. And I was on my way to another meeting and here I am. I've got like scrapes on my arm and just dirt on my jeans. Like I just looked rough. That is not at all what I had had planned when I set my foot on that stair, right? Like we, we expect certain things to happen, and then when they don't, it kind of it kind of throws us off, and that's what we're going to see with Paul's ministry. We see this over and over again with Paul. There's some really awesome high moments, some incredible things that the Lord does, and then there's some really low, difficult moments that come. And I'm just trying to put myself in the mindset of Barnabas and Paul when when they're in this worship service at the church at Antioch, and and the Holy Spirit clearly tells them. I don't know if they heard audibly or what, but it was a clear call from the Holy Spirit to go and do this mission work. And I can imagine they have in their minds like, man, God has called us to this. This is going to be awesome. People are going to get saved. It's going to go great. There's going to be no issues because clearly the, the Lord is in this. He's told us to do this. And that's, again, that, that's not exactly what happened. When we say yes to God's call, we have to expect that things are not always going to go as planned. There's going to be some really good things that happen, and there's going to be some struggles along the way. So again, what can we learn from that? Um, And like I said, we're going to dig into chapter 13 here. I'm going to take it section by section because there's a lot of verses, there's a lot happening, and then I'll kind of give some practical points at the end here. And just to keep in mind, this first missionary journey of Paul and Barnabas uh, most likely took sometime, uh, about two years, sometime in the mid to late 40s AD. There's some debate on exactly when the time frame is, but most likely it was finished before 50 AD. So starting somewhere, maybe 45, 46, 47, and ending uh, before 50 AD. And they, they traveled over a thousand miles for this first journey. And keep in mind, this is just mainly by boat and by walking around a thousand miles over the course of two years. So let's dig in and find out what happened. Our first section starts in verse four. Uh, and this first section is, is the ministry on Cyprus. This is the first place they go, ministry on Cyprus. It covers verses four through 12. So let me read this and then we'll, we'll pause and talk about it before we keep going. Starting verse 4, so being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and they sailed from there to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Alemus, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Okay, let's stop there. Uh, I think we have a map. Do we have that map, Chris? 
uh, we can put up, just kind of give you an idea of, of where they are. So um, as you can see, that's kind of modern-day Syria over here at the bottom, and then up top there, that's modern-day Turkey. So just kind of keep that in mind. So they, they set out from Antioch, they go down to Seleucia, and then they sail to the island of Cyprus, and they, they land in that first port city, Salamis, which is the largest city in Cyprus at this time. So they land there. That, that's about a 60-mile boat ride from Seleucia down to Salamis in Cyprus. So they start there, and it tells us that they start preaching in the synagogues of the Jews. So they start preaching the synagogues, and we're not really told much beyond that. We're just told that they started preaching, and then we're not really told of much fruit. And Luke does like to tell us when things are happening. He'll like to say, and many believed, and many came to the Lord, and the word of the Lord spread in that city, but we're not told anything. So best guess from kind of Bible scholars and just looking at the text Probably not much happened in that first stop. So again, you keep in mind, they're setting out with high hopes, big goals, big ideas of what's going to happen probably, and they get to that first city, and not much happens. So they, they, they land there, they start their ministry. We're also told that, that John is with them. That's John Mark. Uh, we've seen John Mark come up a couple of times. So uh, he was the guy in, in Acts chapter 12 when Peter was set free from, from prison where did he go? He went to John Mark's mom's house. That's where the church was gathered and they were praying. So John Mark was there. Uh, John Mark, we find out in other parts of scripture, is cousins with Barnabas. And he's also the guy that wrote the gospel of Mark. So we're told here that John Mark is with them to assist them. That just means he's their helper. Kind of like the first ever ministry intern, right? We get these ministry interns in church, churches that I've worked, got these young guys and, and, men, and men and women that, that have these big ideas of being in ministry full time and they come in at college and you work the summer and you just give them a bunch of grunt work to do. It's a lot of fun. So I love interns. I had a lot of fun with interns over the years. Uh, so John Mark is like the first ever ministry college intern here in scripture. So he's there to help. Like I said, they arrive in Salamis. Not much happens there. Then they travel to Paphos. That's about a 90-mile journey across the island. They get there, and this is the capital city of Cyprus at the time. That's why the, the proconsul or, or governor is there, Sergius Paulus. So they arrive there, and he's interested. He's interested in the gospel. He's interested in what they have to say. So he calls Saul and Barnabas to preach and to share the good news of Jesus with them. But then there's this guy, right? There's this guy, Bar-Jesus, or Alemus is also what, what his name is. And uh, he's a false prophet. He's a magician. And he's gained, most likely, some kind of influence over the governor. And now he's seeing the governor, man, he's interested in Jesus. He's interested in the gospel. And man, if he turns to faith in Jesus, he's not going to want to hear what I have to say anymore. So you can kind of see this guy's influence and power is starting to slip away. So what does he do? He, he opposes Saul and Barnabas. He opposes them. And this was more than just, you know, your, your average, oh, I just disagree with you. I just want to make an argument. Because Paul looks at him and says, you're a son of the devil. This is a spiritual battle that's going on here. This is more than just earthly opposition. There's a spiritual opposition happening here. And I love the play on words because he's called Bar-Jesus. That means son of Jesus or son of Joshua, the Hebrew name for Jesus and Joshua pretty much the same word. Uh, so son of Jesus, and Paul looks at him and says, no, you're not son of Jesus. You're son of the devil. You're son of Satan. You are not anything like Jesus. You're nothing like God in his ways. You are the exact opposite. And he calls down this judgment where, where he's get, he gets blinded temporarily, right? And Paul knows something about that. He knows something about being temporarily blind, having to be led around. Um, so there's this uh, judgment, there's this spiritual battle going on here. And then in the midst of that, 
Incredible news, right? This is the first, like, really good news. Uh, the proconsul, the governor of Cyprus, believes in Jesus, gets saved, be, believes in Jesus. And it wasn't just because he saw a man get blinded in front of his eyes, right? He said, like, that was, that was cool, that was crazy. But what does it say? It says that he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. What led to his salvation? What led to his belief? The gospel, the teaching of Jesus, the truth of Scripture. It astonished him, and he put his faith in Jesus. Another important thing I want to make note of before we move on, it says here that, that Saul, who was also called Paul, and this marks the moment in Scripture where we go from referencing Saul to now we're going to call him Paul, and he's going to be referred to as Paul for the rest of Acts, and you're going to see, if you study the, the letters of the Apostle Paul, he refers to himself as Paul. Now, what's going on there? Did he just come up with a new name? They rhyme, so is that what he was trying to do? No, most likely... At this time, when you were born, you were given multiple names. And if, uh, if you remember, Saul is from Tarsus right up there. That's modern-day Turkey again. So he's from Tarsus, which is part of the Roman Empire. So when Paul was born, he was born, yes, a Jewish man, but he was also born a Roman citizen. And most likely what people believe is, is if you were a Jewish person who was also a Roman citizen, you were given a Jewish name and also a Roman name, a Gentile name, a Latin name. So his Hebrew name would have been Saul and his Roman name would have been Paul. And the important thing to note here is now he's going to go by Paul, which shows that, that his ministry focus is kind of shifting with this name change. No longer is he going to primarily minister to and disciple and share the gospel with Jewish people. Yes, he's going to continue to do that, but his primary ministry field is going to be Gentiles. So it would make sense that now he, he's going to go by his Gentile name, Paul, because that's most the, the people that he's most going to be around. So that just marks a shift in the ministry here of Paul. And again, he becomes the main focus for the rest of the book of Acts. All right, so that's the first section here. That's, that's ministry in Cyprus. The next section is ministry in Antioch and Pisidia. Uh, so let's read that. This is a larger section, so bear with me. We're going to go from 13 all the way through verse 41. So I'm going to read that, and then we'll, we'll share some notes on it here. So for, starting in verse 13, it says, now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch and Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them, saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen, the God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. I love that phrase, he put up with them. I think we all know what it means to put up with people. That's exactly what God did with the people in, his, in, in the wilderness. Verse 19, and after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years, and after that he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John, that's, that's John the Baptist, had proclaimed a baptism of repentance 
to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, what do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not, I am not worthy to untie. Verse 26, brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us have, has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I've begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe even if one tells it to you. Okay, so what's going on? I told you this is a big section. There's a lot happening. Most of it is just that that sermon that we read from Paul in the synagogue in Antioch and Pisidia. But again, let's, let's look at our map. So they, they are in Paphos. They set sail from Paphos, and they, they go up to the port city in Perga. That's about a 100-mile boat ride. All right, so they, they land in Perga, and then they make their way up to Antioch in Pisidia. So that's, that's up there at the top of the screen there. That, that's about a 100-mile journey from Perga to Antioch, and that's not an easy journey either. They would have been going over some rough, mountainous terrain, dangerous journey would have taken them, them quite a bit of time to make it all the way up to Antioch. And that, that's where we, we pause and we see them come into the synagogues and they're, they're preaching. And that's what we have mainly here is Paul's sermon to the Jewish people and the, the Gentile converts there in that synagogue. Uh, and it's also noted, and I just want to point this out, it's also noted that, that in Perga, John Mark left them. John Mark went back to Jerusalem. And we're going to find out later in Acts 15 that this, this was a big deal. This is, this is going to cause some division between Paul and Barnabas later on, that John Mark deserted them. And we don't know why. I mean, my guess is, is ministry is, is, is hard, and it, you have this idea of what it's going to be, and then you get in, and it's like nothing like you think it's going to be. I can't tell you the amount of young men and, and women that I've sat down with that said, hey, I'm called to ministry, I'm called to ministry, and very few of them are still in ministry at this time. You start out with these grand ideas, and it's, it doesn't always go as planned. Sure, you only have to work on Sundays, which is nice, but there's, you know, there's other things that go along with that. I'm kidding. Um, but ministry's tough. Ministry's tough, just like a lot of other jobs out there. It's tough. You, you go into it with this idea, and if it doesn't work out, I mean, it's easy to get discouraged, and it's easy to, to turn away and go somewhere else. And that, I think that's exactly what happened 
with John Mark here. And again, that's going to cause a rift between Paul and Barnabas, so keep that in mind. But now I want to I focus more on Paul's sermon, because again, that's the bulk of this section. I think it gives us a pattern and a picture of what Paul's sermon to Jewish people in these synagogues would have been. And it's very similar. If, if you've been tracking with us with Acts chapter 2, Peter's sermon at Pentecost, and Stephen's sermon in Acts chapter 7, it's very similar to that. It follows a lot of the same patterns. They even reference some of the same Old Testament passages, uh, but there's kind of three sections to it. So it starts out in verses 16 and 25, and he just gives a summary of Israel's history. And what he's focusing on here is God's promise to Israel, that he promised salvation, that he promised he would bring them a savior, this Messiah. He's been working on this from the very beginning, and everything was pointing to that. So Paul's pointing back, hey, God's been, God's been talking about this for a while. Remember, God's been pointing to the Messiah. God's been pointing to salvation. Y'all remember that. We've talked about this. We see this all the time. And then in verses 26 through 37, he, he talks about how that promise of salvation is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. It's fulfilled in Jesus. He's the Messiah. He's the Savior. He's the one that God has been talking about and pointing to for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. It's all been about Jesus. And Paul makes it clear that the reason we know this, that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the Savior, is because he died and was risen. He died and was raised from the dead. He died and is no longer dead. He is alive. So when he references Psalm 16 where he says, you will not let your Holy One see corruption, that's what he's talking about. He's like, everybody else has died. All the prophets have died. Abraham, dead. David, dead. They're all dead and they're in their graves right now. They saw corruption. It can't be referencing any of them. But guess who hasn't seen corruption? It's Jesus. Yes, he died. But he rose from the dead, and that resurrection confirms that he is the Messiah. He's the promised one. He's the fulfillment of all of this. And then Paul ends it, like we see so often with all of these sermons, with a call to believe. Since Jesus is the Savior, since he is the Messiah, what are these Jewish people supposed to do? How are they supposed to respond? Believing in Jesus. To put their faith and trust in Jesus. And Paul tells us in verses 38 and 39 that, that when we do that, when we put our faith in Jesus, he says we are freed. Our sins are forgiven and we are set free. That word that he uses for freed is where we get our word for justification. Paul says here when we put our faith in Jesus, we are justified. We're justified. And that, that's a legal term that says that we are now right between us and God. Our relationship between God is right now. So before we put our faith in Jesus, we know this, the Bible talks about how we're all sinners. Every single one of us is a sinner. And because of that sin, because we've sinned against God, we stand condemned. We stand guilty, right? I'm guilty of my sin. I'm guilty of doing the things that I shouldn't do. And because of that, I deserve punishment. I deserve wrath. I deserve hell forever. The Bible makes this clear. But Paul says when we put our faith in Jesus, we, we are justified. No longer do we stand guilty and condemned. We stand innocent. We stand clean, cleansed from all of our sin. All of our sins are forgiven. We are now in a, in a holy position before God. That has nothing to do with, with, with us, right? Like we can't earn that. Paul says the law can't do that. 
Which, by the way, what he's saying there is like our good morals can't do that. Like we can't just hope that we're going to end up at the, the end of our lives and, and hopefully our good deeds will outweigh our bad deeds. Paul says, no, that's not possible. You cannot free yourself. Your good deeds, your morals, your law can't free you. Your traditions can't free you. Your family background can't free you. Just because you are a Jewish person doesn't mean you're freed. And for us, just because our parents went to church doesn't mean we're a believer. Just because we grew up in church doesn't mean that we're a believer, right? That's not what makes us free. Our faith in Jesus makes us free, makes us justified. It's, it's trusting in his work, not my own. So when we're justified, I go from a position of guilt to now a position of innocence and holiness before God. That's what it means to be justified. And Paul ends his sermon by quoting from the prophet Habakkuk, talking about the judgment of Israel that, that God was going to use the Babylonians for, and he, he relates that to the people listening, saying, hey, hey God's going to hold us all accountable, right? We are all going to be judged. We're all going to stand before God. And unless we've been justified, unless we've been made right, we will face judgment. We will face condemnation. So we need to put our faith in Jesus. So that, that's the end of Paul's sermon. And then we, we see the last section here, verses 42 through 52. It's, it's the response to Paul's ministry. So what happens after he preaches this sermon? Starting in verse 42, it says this, as they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism, that, that would be Gentiles, followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Verse 48. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit." Okay, so we'll, let's look a little closer at this response before we get into some application points. So the crowd responds well initially, right? They, they respond well initially, and they're like, man, we want to hear you. Come back, come back next week, right? Come back next week, preach some more, share some more. We want to hear you. So they, they do that. They agree to come back next week, and, and as a result, the whole city's there. Like, it's a big turnout, and some of the, the Jewish people who, who probably were, were having a little bit more power, more influence over this synagogue, I mean, they got jealous. They got jealous, so they started to combat Paul. They started to contradict him, argue with him, says that they reviling him. That word literally means to blaspheme or slander him. So this is not just, you know, friendly back and forth little banter. No, they, they, were, they were being harsh towards Paul. So Paul and Barnabas, what do they do? They turn their attention to the Gentiles. Their ministry now, now shifts in this city. That They are now shifting and focusing on the Gentiles. And they, they tell the Jews, man, you've, you've rejected this message of salvation and you've proven that you are unworthy of eternal life. So now we are turning our attention to the Gentiles. And look at how the Gentiles respond. I want to read this again. I love this, these two verses, verses 48 and 49. It says, and when the Gentiles heard this, 
they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed, and the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. And God is doing stuff here. People are responding, believing, putting their faith in Jesus. Now, I do want to, before we skip ahead, like, you know, we're working verse by verse, and I don't want to shy away. I might get myself in trouble here, but there's a verse here. There's a part of this verse that can cause some confusion, that can be a little sticky for us at times, and I just want to clearly explain what this section means when it says, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Now, what does that mean? What does that mean? Well, that word appointed means just that. It means that uh, to appoint or assign something to someone. That's what that word means. So here, what's being assigned or appointed is belief and eternal life. It's salvation. That's what's being appointed to these Gentiles is salvation. Now, if you remember last week when we, we kind of went to Greek grammar school and we nerded out for a few minutes, we talked about passive and perfect and all that good stuff. Well, if you remember that, here is another passive verb in the perfect tense. So that, that verb for appointed is passive, which means I'm not appointing myself. Somebody else is appointing me to something. Somebody else is assigning me to something. So it's passive. It's something done to me. And it's also in the perfect tense, which means that it's something that was completed long ago that now has effects in the present day moment. So what's it talking about here? It's talking about God's sovereign work in salvation. That's what it's talking about here. God is the one doing this. That's what makes it clear here. God is the one who's appointing. God is the one who is assigning eternal life to people who believe. And it's something that was done a long time ago. All right, this is not done in the moment. This was decided by God a long time ago. He appointed certain Gentiles for salvation and belief in this moment. It was decided a long time ago, and now we're seeing the practical results of that here in the present. So what does this mean? What, is it, what does this mean? Because we, we see in Scripture that, that God appoints, that God elects, that God chooses, and we also see in Scripture that, that we believe. We put our faith in Jesus. We call out to the Lord. And a lot of times, there's, there's this line that's drawn, and you're either on the appointed, elected side, or you're on the I call out, I believe, I choose side. So which one is it? Which one is it? Does God elect, or do we believe? Does God choose, or do we respond? And the answer is yes. Yes. It's both and. It's both and. Does God elect? Yes. That is clear in Scripture. Do we call out to the Lord for salvation? Do we put our faith in Jesus? Do we respond with belief? Yes, that's clear as day in Scripture too. Does it make sense? No. Are we supposed to understand that? No. I got news for you. We are finite human beings, sinful human beings, that are created by a perfect, holy, eternal God. If we can understand everything about God, what's the point of God? We're not meant to always understand. So instead of drawing hard lines and making things black and white where they're actually gray and it's both and and not either or, let's embrace it. Let's embrace the both and. Let's embrace the yes to this. Does God elect? Yes. Do we respond with belief? Yes, absolutely. It's both and, guys. So that's what's going on here. Again, I probably got myself in trouble. If you have questions about that, 
let me know. I'd be glad to help clarify. Uh, this could have taken an entire sermon to explain, uh, but I just wanted to make point of that. So again, if you have questions, you want to talk more about this, let me know, and we can go from there. So anyways, uh, they, they, uh, they're reviling him. People are responding. Like There's good and bad going on here. Eventually, uh, there's enough people in the city that they kind of force Paul and Barnabas out, and they, they travel over to Iconium, which we're going to pick up in verse or in chapter 14 uh, in a couple of weeks. Uh, we'll, we'll dig into chapter 14, so make sure you're here for that, and we're going to see what happens in Iconium in Derby when they, when they go there. So uh, anyways, let's dig into some practical points before we end today. Before we close up, I just want to give you a couple practical points to think about uh, as we close up. So last week, we, we saw this call from, from God to Paul and Barnabas to this task, right, to this specific ministry that God was calling them to. And here in Acts 13, we see them respond in obedience, right? They follow the calling of God. They say yes to this calling from God. And God calls us to follow him too, right? God, God calls us to walk in obedience to wherever he leads us. So what happens when we respond to that call? What can we learn about following Jesus with the lives of Paul and Barnabas here? Well, there's two things I want to point out before we end today. First one, when we follow Jesus, we will face opposition. When we follow Jesus, we will face opposition. When we follow him, the path that Jesus leads us on is not always or not often the easiest path. It's not always or very often the path that has the most earthly success or earthly blessings, right? It's not always the path of least resistance. And I think sometimes, I know I can at times have in my mind, well, if I'm following Jesus, if he's given me this clear command, then it, it, it should be easy, right? Like, it should, it should all go according to plan. Like, it should all just come together and flow together, and there shouldn't be opposition. There shouldn't be obstacles. If I face an obstacle, well, maybe I misheard, right? Maybe, I'm, maybe I disobeyed. Maybe that's true. But opposition does not always equal that. A lot of times opposition is just the path that the Lord has for us. So what are some opposition that we see here in, in the lives of Paul and Barnabas? Well, first, they, they face spiritual opposition. They face spiritual opposition. When Paul faces off against Elemus, Bar-Jesus, this, this Jewish false prophet, again, he calls him the son of the devil, son of the devil. This shows us that, that there is real spiritual warfare going on, that there, there's more behind the scenes of this than, than, than we can see with our eyes here. There is a spiritual battle going on. And in this life, we are going to face spiritual attacks. We are going to face spiritual warfare, especially when we follow Jesus. Especially when we follow Jesus. Satan is described in Scripture as this prowling lion ready to attack. And he does. And he attacks through a variety of ways, right? He lies to us. He accuses us. He tempts us. Like, he's got all these different tricks. He pulls out all the stops when we follow Jesus. Because guess what? He doesn't like that we follow Jesus. He doesn't want us to follow Jesus. So when I say yes to follow Jesus, when I walk in obedience to him, guess what? Satan is coming. And he's going to come hard. The harder we follow after Jesus, the more and more spiritual attacks we're going to face. We see this all over scripture. He wants to stop us, and when we, when we don't listen, when we keep going, he just comes after us all the more. So when we follow Jesus, expect spiritual attacks. Expect spiritual opposition here. And you feel like, man, I'm, I don't have any of that. I don't really face him down. I don't really, I'm not really you know, feeling spiritually attacked right here. Maybe we need to ask ourselves, am I, am I really following Jesus? Because guess what? If you're not, Satan's going to leave you alone. He's going to say, yes, Travis, keep Keep not following. You keep doing what you're doing. I'm going to go bug people over here that are actually following Jesus. 
So just know when we step out in faith, when we say yes to Jesus, when we follow his leading, we're going to face spiritual opposition. We're going to face spiritual attack. Another opposition that we see here is cultural opposition. Cultural opposition. Paul and Barnabas were rejected by their own culture. These are Jewish men. They're coming before other Jewish people to start out with, and they're rejected by their own people, by their own culture, cast out by them, right? The Jews didn't want to have anything to do with them. Why? Because, because the way of Christ kind of threatens their, their status quo. It threatens where they are in society. It threatens their way of life because it would mean, it would mean change. It would mean doing things differently, believing different things, and, and, and we don't like that. We don't like to be challenged with the status quo, right? Like we want to keep things the way they are. But see, when we follow Jesus, we're going to push against the culture. We're going to push against the culture. And look, I, I'm sure you know this, but if you don't, the culture that we live in is radically opposed to the ways of Jesus. And when we follow him, we are going to be in direct opposition to our culture. When we say yes to follow Jesus, we're going to face opposition. When we, when we speak out about things, when we speak biblical truth about things in the culture, when we stick to our scriptural convictions and our scriptural beliefs, when we, we hold this to be truly the word of God, and we let this direct what we believe and how we live, we're going to go against the culture in a lot of ways. And we're going to face opposition we're going to be rejected. We're going to be cast out. We're going to be slandered against, just like Paul and Barnabas were. We have to expect that. So we'll face cultural opposition. We'll also face relational opposition. And like I said, we'll, we'll address this more when we get to Acts 15, but, but there is relational opposition in this first missionary journey, right? John Mark deserts him. He heads back. He leaves. He's out. Goes back to Jerusalem. And again, this is going to cause a big rift between Paul and Barnabas. There was relational opposition. I'm sure that was hard for them to see, right? John Mark to just desert them after their first stop. Look, when we follow Jesus, we're going to face relational opposition. When we follow Jesus, we stick to the convictions in Scripture, we might lose friends. We might have some some struggles, some, some friction with our family who don't agree with or understand the ways that we're living. Not everybody's going to agree with our decisions. Might have to go against some coworkers and kind of openly say, man, that, the way that we're doing stuff, that's, that's not right. I, I, don't, I can't do that anymore. Jesus doesn't allow me to, to operate the way that we're doing this, right? We're going to face opposition. We're going to maybe make things, uh, you know, relationally awkward. I know none of us like that. We don't enjoy that thing. We need to expect it when we follow Jesus. I mean, look, look at all that opposition. And that, that's not even to mention the hard journey, right? Like these guys are traveling by boat for hundreds of miles. They're walking on foot through mountains for hundreds of miles like this. There was a lot of opposition. And it all came from saying yes to Jesus, right? I mean, Rewind back to Acts chapter 11, where we're looking at Antioch and the things happening in Antioch. And ministry was awesome, right? This church is growing. People are putting their faith in Jesus. And Paul and Barnabas are leading this thing. And here's God that says, hey, I want you to leave this awesome ministry, fruitful place to go to places that you've never been to and preach the gospel. And you don't even know what's about to happen. Like, I'm sure there were some thoughts. At least I would have some thoughts on my way to Antioch and Pisidia, climbing over those mountains. I go, man. Should have stayed in Antioch. Should have stayed in Antioch. Why did we agree to this again? Why did we say yes to this again? So when we follow Jesus, 
it's not always going to work out the way that we think. We are going to face opposition. The Bible speaks to this. James 1-2 says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Not if, when. And how many trials? Who knows? What kinds are they? A bunch of different kinds. Various trials. 1 Peter 4, 12 through 19 says this, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because of the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is the time of judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Verse 19, therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. We will face trials. We will face opposition. When we do that, let's trust God. I love this quote from pastor and Bible scholar Kent Hughes. He sums it up this way. He says, there is a cost to sincere service for Christ. Never share your faith and you will never look like a fool. Never stand for righteousness on a social issue and you will never be rejected. Never practice consistent honesty in business and you will not lose the trait of a not so honest associate. Never reach out to the needy and you will never be taken advantage of. Never give your heart and it will never be broken. Never go to Cyprus and you will never be subjected to a dizzy, heart-convulsing confrontation with Satan. Seriously, follow Christ and you will experience a gamut of sorrows almost completely unknown to the unbeliever. But of course, you will also know the joy of adventure with the Lord of the universe and of spiritual victory as you live a life of allegiance to him. So we will face opposition. But the second thing that we see here is when we follow Jesus, lives will be changed. When we follow Jesus, lives will be changed. See, despite the opposition, God uses Paul and Barnabas to carry the gospel to people who otherwise would have never heard, right? He's preaching mainly to Gentiles. They didn't have this history of God's promises, of, of seeing God work. They couldn't go back and reference the scriptures and go, oh man, this really is pointing to Jesus. We really should put our faith in Jesus. Gentiles didn't have any of that. If Paul and Barnabas did not say yes, if they did not go, these people would not have believed. The gospel would not have been proclaimed to them. The gospel would not have been preached to them, and they would not have put their faith in Jesus. Because Paul and Barnabas said yes and followed Jesus, their lives and the lives of all these people were changed forever. And this is what Jesus does. When we follow him, our lives are changed and it starts with us, right? When we follow Jesus, my life is changed, right? You go back to the, our, our initial salvation. When I first say yes to Jesus, our lives are immediately changed, right? Paul says, we're freed. No longer are we guilty. We're justified, and we are forever accepted by God. We're forever seen as holy. We are forever standing before God in a position of holiness, all because of what Jesus has done for us. Our lives are forever changed. And the Bible tells us that when we first follow Jesus, we're to continue that pattern for our lives. We're to continue saying yes to Jesus every moment of every day. And when we do that, the Bible says we become more and more like Jesus. We're forever and constantly changed to look more like Jesus, to live more like Jesus when we say yes to him. That's what the Bible calls the process of sanctification. It's the process of being more like Jesus. 
And look, here's the thing. We, we do this by actively obeying Jesus every moment of our lives. So what, what we see, I think, even in our own lives and what we see from Scripture is, is we don't just magically drift into holiness. We don't just magically drift into Christ-likeness, right? If we just drift along, the waves of the culture is going to take us far away from Jesus. I don't know you guys have experienced this, but I was at the beach over the summer with my family, and our kids, our two oldest ones, were really wanting to be in the water, and their cousins were wanting to be in the water. They were a little younger. They all had their life jackets on. It was a little rough. It was a little choppy this one day, and then here they are. They're all kind of like just bobbing in the ocean, and me and my brother-in-law and my stepdad were out there with them, and the next thing you know, man, we are like pulled, like our stuff is over here, and we're like pulled all the way down over here, so we're like, all right, kids, we got to get out, and we get out there. We want to go back in, so we go back to our stuff. We get back in, and then guess what? We drift back down. And we realize, oh man, we're really far away. We've got to get out. We've got to walk back over here. Like the current was just taking us, right? When, that, when you're in the, in the water like that and the current's pulling you, you don't really have an option. You've got to go with that. Well, so often we live our lives just drifting. And we're not going to drift towards Jesus. We're going to drift away from Jesus. Instead, we should be like what 2 Peter calls us to. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5 through 10 says, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. How do we live our lives? How do we follow Jesus? We make every effort to say yes to him. We make every effort to follow him in every way, in every day, every moment. We say yes to Jesus. We follow him. When we follow Jesus, our lives are changed. When we follow Jesus, other people's lives are changed. Again, people put their faith in Jesus because Paul and Barnabas went, because they said yes, because they followed Jesus, and these people's lives were forever changed. And I believe God wants to use us to change people's lives too. I believe God wants to use you to change the lives of people around you. And all he wants is, is for you to say yes to that, to say yes and follow him and just share Jesus. I mean, think about, for those of us who are believers in here, think about what led you to put your faith in Jesus. Most of us, and statistics bear this out, most people who put their faith in Jesus do so because they were told by somebody else about Jesus or they were invited to church where they heard about Jesus by someone else, right? Whether you were a little kid being invited to VBS or some church camp and you heard somebody preach or as an adult somebody invited you along or maybe you were taught about Jesus by your parent. Most of us don't have Paul's conversion story where we're just walking along and boom, there's Jesus and he tells us about the gospel and we put our faith, right? Somebody else in our lives had a role in our salvation. You can be that person for somebody else. You can be that person that God uses to introduce somebody else to Jesus. And it just takes us saying yes and walking in obedience to that. All it is is just saying, hey, would you, you want to you come to church with me this Sunday? 
They say no, boom, you ask the next week, all right, and the next week, and the next week, and you bug them. And maybe finally, because you're annoying enough, they'll finally go, okay, fine, I'll do it, leave me alone. Well, hey, they came. You don't know what God's going to do. Where you say, Let me, can I share with you about this really important thing in my life? His name's Jesus. I just want to, you know, take, can I take five minutes? I mean, we're friends. We've known each other for a while. Can I just take five minutes to tell you why I'm a Christian? You have no idea what God's going to do. You have no idea how he's going to save somebody else's life, change them forever, all because we said yes. All because we were obedient to the mission. So who can you share Jesus with this week? Who can you invite to come hear about Jesus with you this week? Let's not, let's not delay it anymore. Let's not avoid it. Let's, let's not just keep hoping that somebody else will do it. Let's not just keep assuming, well, I, I, I can't do it. It's just too hard. Somebody else is going to have to do it. No, maybe God wants to use you. Maybe he's called you to do this. I'm just waiting on you to say yes. Is it going to be a risk? Yes. It might be awkward? Yes. It might face opposition? Yes. They might laugh at you? Yes. Okay, you move on with your life. Let's say yes to Jesus. Paul and Barnabas show us what it looks like to follow Jesus. It won't always be easy. It might be hard. It might not always bring the success that we think it's going to bring but we follow Jesus anyways. We say yes to him because when we do, our lives are forever changed by him. When we follow Jesus, no matter what may come, we can have hope. We can have hope where there is no hope. We have the promise of life where, where all there is is death around us. We, we, ha- we can have joy even in the sorrow and even in the suffering. Why? Because we have Jesus. Because we have him. And if we have him, we've got everything. So Christian, in the room, as we end today, we're going to always, as we do every week, we're going to step into this time of worship and communion. And I just want to encourage you, take, take some time at your seats. Spend some time in prayer, preparing your heart. Maybe you need to spend some time repenting of sin. Maybe, maybe you have been drifting. Maybe you've been saying yes to the world and the culture more than you have Jesus. And you just need to sit for a moment and remind yourself of the gospel. Remind yourself that you've been set free. Remind yourself that you are justified, that you are holy and perfect because of what Jesus has done. And we let that truth of our justification lead us to a life of sanctification. Maybe you need to spend some time just in prayer with that. Maybe you need to spend some time praying for those in your life that don't know Jesus. And pray, Lord, give me strength to obey you this week. Give me strength to have a conversation. Give me strength to to give an invite to somebody in my life that needs to hear about Jesus. And then as you're ready, as we do every week, again, you come to the tables, you get the cup and, and the bread, you eat, you drink, and you remember the salvation that Jesus alone provides. And if you're here and, and you don't believe in Jesus, I'm thankful that you're here, but this time of communion is just for believers. But I want you to know that this call to salvation it goes to you as well. And if you want freedom, if you want forgiveness, if you want eternal life, just say yes to Jesus. Say yes to him. Put your faith and trust in him. And if you want to do that, I'll be hanging out in the back. I'd love to talk to you about that. I'd love to pray with you. If you have things going on in your life and you need prayer, I'll be back there as well. I'd love to pray over you today. Let me pray for us and we'll step into worship and communion. Jesus, We thank you for this day. We thank you for your word. 
Lord, we thank you for how you lead us and guide us. It's not always easy. Lord, sometimes it is difficult. Sometimes there is suffering. Sometimes there is pain and loss. But Jesus, would you, would you strengthen us for that, Lord? Would you give us your love and your peace and your comfort, Lord? Would you remind us of the truth that you have set us free? And in you, Lord, there is freedom. When we follow you, that's where we find freedom, Lord. Would you remind us of these truths? Would you give us strength to walk in obedience to you wherever you may call us, Lord? And we ask all of this in your powerful name. Amen.